Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. To Encounter Church. My name is Chris Causey. Um, if you're new here today, um, I'm the pastor, and I'm thrilled that you've decided to join us for uh, what's been a, a really helpful series called You're Not the Boss of Me. That You're Not the Boss of Me really kind of centers over the last few weeks and into next week around conversations about the one thing that often does try to take control of us in situations and circumstances, our emotions. And that as I've said the last few weeks, that oftentimes the moments in our lives that we wish we could undo or redo were often the moments when the emotions were in control of you. And the series has been a little different. Last week I talked about envy, if you weren't here, and the week before introduced you to a way of thinking about emotions. The, the desire for the series wasn't that you would just hear about typical emotions that we, we think about that are struggles for us. So I wanted to kind of go a little bit deeper and look at some of the emotions that we see throughout the Bible and, and these critical moments in people's lives that can alter the course of their life. Um, and today I want to take you on another one of those journeys. Uh, through an emotion that maybe you haven't thought a lot about, but I can pretty much guess has been one of those traveling companions in your life at those critical moments. To start, I want to take you on my vacation this past summer. It was sort of a working vacation. I um, was invited to speak at a church in um, California for a friend of mine, and it just worked out that I was able to take my family, and we were staying in a guest house. And it was one of the last days that we were there, and we were kind of going through our morning routine, and all of a sudden, the house started to shake a little bit. Um, the like uh, hangers in the closet were rocking back and forth. The um, blinds started shaking. I heard Jenny go, my wife, go, whoa, what just happened? I got dizzy. Um, and, and we were kind of like sitting there, like, I think that was an earthquake. I'd never been in an earthquake Fortunately, over here, things seem to be a little bit more stable on the ground, which I'm grateful for. Um, but we were sitting in the apartment, that little guest house, and we are like, oh, my goodness, we just experienced an earthquake. Like, what do you do? You know, like, I was trying to think back to my education experiences. I know what to do with a tornado. Um, you know, I know stop, drop, and roll for fires, but I don't really know if this thing works for earthquakes. And then out of nowhere, my daughter says, oh, my goodness, I've developed superpowers. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Ella, what? I'm a seven-year-old who's been coloring the entire time. She's like, you won't believe it. I was sitting there, and I was coloring the coloring book. And I was really into it. And I think I was coloring so hard that I'm, I think maybe I had superpowers because the house shook when I started coloring really hard. Like, I think I have superpowers. We're like, sweetie, no, that was an earthquake. It was just really funny. I'm sitting there, you know, and Jenny and I are trying to figure out, you know, is this something dangerous we need to be concerned about? We don't have training for this. And my daughter's conclusion from the whole moment is that clearly she has superpowers. That's, that, that's the only logical explanation for why things in the house just shook. Because she was coloring really hard. And, you know, she was so into that that she just shook the house in the process. And what's interesting is kind of coming out of that moment, is even though that's mo that, that moment's really kind of cute and kind of like we laughed about it, it actually highlights one of the most powerful things you and I do as humans. And that moment just happened to be a really cute thing, 
but that we have this ability to shape meaning out of almost any moment we find ourselves in. It's a really subtle thing. You and I do it all the time, that we find ourselves in situations and circumstances, and we draw conclusions. And the conclusions we draw from those circumstances, the meaning we make out of those moments, oftentimes shape who we become or what we experience. It's really subtle. And the reason it's so powerful isn't that there's the, just the really sweet kind of moment where my daughter concludes that she has superpowers. It's that oftentimes it rarely ever does it play out in the cute kind of way. It doesn't come out in these little like playful, I have superpower kind of ways. It comes out in the negative ways. It shapes our life. It's one of the biggest dangers when it comes to our emotional and processing this internal mechanism. And it's this process that you and I are so good at that we rarely ever think about. That we just take the moment that we experienced and the meaning that we've concluded and we push them together and we never ever realize that they're actually two separate things. We don't see them as two independent individual kind of entities. We see them as one great big thing. And this moment, this mechanism, this ability that we have is actually one of the backdrops for one of the most famous books in the Bible. It's one of the books that Jesus quotes more than any other book. It's the book that is arguably one of the most important books in the Old Testament. It's the book of Deuteronomy. It's probably not a book you and have spent a lot of time processing through or understanding. It's, it's a, a, one of the older books in the Old Testament. But this book is foundational for both the Jewish and the Christian faith. Like I said, Jesus quotes exclusively in certain pivotal moments in his ministry from the book of Deuteronomy. Specifically, two chapters in Deuteronomy are a bulk of Jesus' quotations. This book shaped the Christian faith. The book of Deuteronomy was written towards the end of Moses' life. Moses was this famous deliverer, rescuer. He was this prophet that God used, this nobody who went to the most powerful man in the world and said, hey, a bush talked to me and told me to tell you to let his people go. Oh, I, I know that the, the slaves are the entire economic engine of the Egyptian empire, but the God who spoke to me at the bush, that, you know, the bush that I spoke to when I was a fugitive from this land, um, yeah, that God told me to tell you to let his people go free. And Pharaoh's like, are you out of, are you, like, are you, what are you, are you smoking that bush? Like, are you serious? Do you think I'm going to let you, like, little weird desert prophet come in and tell me what to do. And then what happens is God shows up in the midst of that and Moses leads people out of Egypt into the wilderness and they stand at the foot of the mountain and God speaks to them. The Ten Commandments are given. It's this defining moment in human history. It has profound implications in a way that we don't have time to talk through. And, and yet what happens in the weeks that follows that moment is that Israel um, has this devastating disaster that causes them to wander in a desert for 40 years. So what starts off really good ends really bad. And for 40 years, these people wander. And Moses is responsible for leading these estimated hundreds of thousands, if not upwards close to a million people, through the desert. 150-mile stretch of desert where water and livestock and vegetation is basically not found anywhere. Not your ideal vacation spot. And this is Moses' responsibility. 
And as Moses gets towards the end of his life, he gives a series of six speeches, a kind of farewell addresses. And these final farewell speeches are what we now call the book of Deuteronomy. You see, Moses understood as humans, we have a tendency to, to apply meaning into our moments. And he wanted this new generation of people to understand what was about to happen. He wanted them to not fall into the ditch that their, this, the, the, their ancestors had fallen into, that their parents had made. He, he was wanting to protect them from those decisions. So he gives a series of addresses that build. And the first address we find happens in Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 1. It says in verse 19, Then, as the Lord our God commanded us, we sent out from Oreb, which is Mount Sinai, um, spot of the Ten Commandments, and we went towards the hill country of the Amorites through all the vast and dread, dreadful wilderness that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barna. Now, for us reading that sentence, we don't have any of the fullness of 40 years the way that these people have. There are individuals whose parents have passed away over the last 40 years. In fact, there is only a handful of people who are alive in this moment right here who were alive and actually witnessed what had happened in Egypt because they'd all passed away. So these are all the children of people who've watched God do miracles. And they're standing. And Moses, with probably the biggest understatement in the world to them, calls the vast and dreadful wilderness that you have seen. If you had to walk by foot with all of your life possessions through 150 miles of a desert, vast and dreadful wilderness is an understatement. And this is what Moses is trying to say. He's like, remember, we started over there, and then we went through all of that to end up here. Kadesh Barna, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. That has a lot of significance, too. And then, verse 20, it says that Moses said, Then I said to you, now Moses is getting ready to launch into his first kind of walk down memory lane. He's like, I want to take you back to this moment, one of the most consequential moments in your parents' generation. Because I want you to learn something that they didn't learn. And I want you to do something that they didn't do. Because this will have control over your life if you can learn to take control of it. And so then he launches into this story. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God has given us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it, as if the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. He's starting to tell them about this moment that many of them would have heard about, but have never fully processed through it. They know that it's been the reason they've ended up back here. But Moses is like, I was there. I want you to hear some things. He says, you know, I, I told him that day, don't be discouraged. God has promised this land that you're getting ready to step into. And then all of you came to me and said, let us send some men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns that we will come to. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected 12 of you, one from each tribe, and they left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and explored it. Taking with some of them the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. So the backdrop is that the first time they had come to this place, they had spent a few weeks traveling through the wilderness, and now they're arrived at the promised land, this great kind of expectation of these people who'd been brought out of Egypt as slaves. 
And when they arrive there, they find that the land already has some occupants. And so that means it's probably going to cause a little bit of struggle to walk in and say, hey, this actually belongs to us. And so they came up with an idea. Let's send 12 people in to kind of get a lay of the land because we've never been here before. And so send those 12 in and those 12 will come back and tell us the routes we should take, the places we should visit and settle to create and to establish our new home. And so Moses is like, it was a good idea. So we sent 12 in. About 40 days transpires. It takes them 12, 12 men 40 days to go through the nation of what we now call Israel. They come back and Moses is drawing up a specific memory. He uses the word Valley of Eshkol. Valley of Eshkol um, is the portion of Israel today that's known for its um, grapes that it grows. Eshkol is like clusters, flowers. It's kind of an allusion to this really rich, fertile piece of land. The, the grapes were undoubtedly so large that when they took the cluster off the vine, that two men had to carry it tied to a pole. One of the words that they used to describe it is they say it's like land flowing with milk and honey, which is kind of a weird thing to say. But you have to realize these are people who've been living in the desert. To get milk requires that you have farm animals, farm animals that have access to grass. So he's like, by saying it's a land flowing with milk, he's saying it's, it's green, it's lush. And to accentuate that, he says it's flowing with honey. Well, honey, because... The vegetation, the flowers are so beautiful and in bloom throughout the seasons that there is so, an abundance of honey, something you don't see in the desert. It takes about two million flowers to make a pound of honey. So it's a massive amount of bees traveling to produce that much honey. And he's like, how do I, this place has so much honey. Our livestock are going to grow and flourish. There'll be milk flowing and honey flowing everywhere. It's amazing. And this sounds really good. This sounds really, really good. And yet, the story is, is they come back and they don't just talk about how good it is. They also talk about how terrifying it is too. Verse 26, he says, But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. And then I said to you, do not be, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. So Moses, a couple, a couple times throughout the story, uses a series of different words. He ends it right there with the sentence, do not be afraid, do not be terrified. It's been said that uh, the more a people experience something, the more words they have for it. Uh, you've probably heard that the Eskimos have more words for snow than they do for flowers, right? And so the, the more you travel north, the more there are words in the vocabulary of a people for snow and winter. And the further you travel south, the more there are words for grass and summer and heat. That as a culture ex is exposed to certain circumstances or situations or experiences, they tend by nature to have more words for it. And one of the things that's interesting about the Old Testament when you read through it is there are a large amount of words for fear discouragement, terror. 
And Moses starts and ends his little kind of block right here in this section that we've read by pointing out this command, do not be afraid, do not be terrified, do not be discouraged. Because he recognizes that the thing that's going to hinder them, the thing that hindered their parents from walking in and the thing that could hinder them from walking in is discouragement. I doubt that you and I have thought a lot about discouragement, even if we've had a lot of discouraging thoughts. And what I want to do over the next few minutes is I want to just drill into this idea of discouragement. Because when I read this story, when I look at my life, when I sit across the table from some of you, what I've found consistently over time is that oftentimes discouragement is a barrier to the breakthroughs in our lives. That I have watched marriages fall apart. I have watched relationships dissolve. I have watched professionals hindered. I've watched people in their personal life with addictions shut down because discouragement stepped in. Because of whispers that started to echo inside their mind. Maybe it was words they heard growing up from their parents that even though their parents are now long gone, those words aren't. That you're never going to be good enough or you're not smart enough. Or people like us don't go and do things like that. That discouragement is one of those human struggles that we all have experienced. But rarely ever do we sit to take time to process what it's about. And the Hebrews, these people, seem to understand discouragement really well. They have a lot of different words for it. And one of the words that they have, um, I think is an interesting word, is the word short. If you read through it in that, uh, the language that Moses wrote, periodically you'll see him use the word short for the word discouragement. Because it points to, to this deeper kind of dynamic about discouragement. You see, that discouragement may have one fruit that we've all experienced, but it has multiple roots. I've heard a pastor kind of alliterate it in a way that was, I think, helpful for us in our discussion, that discouragement comes from often one of four places. It comes from a place of fatigue. If you've ever been physically, spiritually, emotionally drained and exhausted, that, that's one of those sources for where discouragement comes in. That for my wife and I in this season of a newborn, I, I easily find myself getting discouraged recently. And a lot of it's because I'm, I'm tired. Another place that discouragement can come from is frustration. Where you're bumping up what feels like an impossible wall that you can't break through. Another place that discouragement, another route, is failure. When you experience a failure in your life, whether it's a personal, professional setback, that, that failure can often be a source of discouragement. And the last one is fear. The what-ifs. And what could be, and what might be. And Israel, actually, in, in, even in the midst of this short passage, experiences all four of them. That they've tasted all four of these different roots, and it's led to this one central fruit of discouragement. And Moses, multiple times in this passage, says, Do not be discouraged, avoid discouragement, beware of discouragement. It's going to leave you feeling like you're short, like you don't have enough to overpower what it is that you are about to step into. He recognized that discouragement distorts our reality. Discouragement distorts both our perspective and it hinders us in our progress. Like when we find ourselves in places of discouragement, 
Oftentimes, we feel whispered inside of our hearts and mind, the decision's already been made. It's already done. Right? Oftentimes, when people start talking about discouragement, I hear words like, I should probably just give up or give in. Discouragement feels so hopeless. And the reason it feels so hopeless is because it feels like the decision has already been made. Your marriage is going to fail. You're always going to be stuck in that job. You're always going to be trapped by that addiction. You're always going to be bound in those unhealthy relationships. You're always going to be stuck in that financial situation. It's hopeless. Give up. Give in. Surrender. Walk away. That's what discouragement says. And what does Moses do? He says multiple times, do not be discouraged. Do not be terrified. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Why? Because Moses understands something, that when discouragement shows up, it tells you the decision's already been done, and there's no hope. And Moses is saying, hold up. Wait a second. You have a decision to make. You have a choice in which voice you're going to follow. Discouragement does not have to have the final word in this situation. You can step through, not just step away. Because there's a promised land waiting for you if you're willing to walk through it. And so here they are, and they're in a situation, and he's, his chief lesson for them is you still have a choice. You still have a choice where you are in the midst of middle school or high school with what your friends are doing and feeling discouraged because no one gets you and no one understands and no one wants to live out the faith that you're trying to live out, you still have a choice. But showing up on Monday tomorrow and your boss is an idiot and no one appreciates what you're doing and no one sees how hard you work and it starts to erode you on the inside, you still have a choice. You still have a choice, and it begins with which voice are you going to focus in on? Because we don't have to just move on, slow down or surrender. We don't have to walk away. We can walk through. And this is the invitation. And so let me get really practical. What does it look like? If discouragement distorts, if it tells us the decision's already been made, then how do we step into it? How do we actually fight against discouragement? How do we change its impact on our life? I'll give you two, kind of two headers, and then I'm going to get super practical, because just to be real with you, discouragement is something that I deal with, and I imagine you deal with it too. I imagine there are days where you feel like you've failed as a parent, or you feel so discouraged with what you're looking at in life right now. And some of these things are going to sound really simple, but I'm telling you, I practice them. Because discouragement likes to ride in the seat beside me, and it likes to try to take control of the radio and control what I'm hearing in my head. And the first thing I want to challenge you to do is to change the view that you have. Discourage the storts. It likes to shape that view. And the first thing that you can choose to do is change the view. If you notice that um, as he's talking through, in verse 20 it says, it says, you grumbled in your tents. And it says, the Lord hates us, so he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the Hammerites to destroy us. Where can we go? 
Our brothers have made our heart melt in fear. The first thing that you see in this passage are these people's inner self-talk. They're inside their tents, they're inside their homes, and what are they? They're having this inner dialogue. And the inner dialogue is it's done, it's over, we're terrified, we're chickens, we're never gonna win this thing. And that one of the first things that you can start to fight and to change to overcome discouragement is the inner self-talk happening inside of you. You don't have to be a spectator and listen to the thing just flowing through your head. You can actually speak back to it. You can actually talk back to the talk inside your head. You do not have to be a victim to the voice inside of your head. So many of us have walked away from so many potential good things because the voice in our head said, well, you're not smart enough. There are more people more qualified. There are other relationships that are probably worth fighting for, but this one's not. Those voices inside of our head trying to pull us out. You don't have to listen. You can talk back. This is a really valuable, powerful skill. Israel chose not to talk back. They just listened. And because of that, they just allowed that self-talk to shape how they saw their circumstances. Another thing, this is interesting, is to physically change your actual view. These people, what are they doing? They're stuck inside their tent. Now, Interesting, if you go back and you study this moment, there was this thing that God promised. He said, I'm going to be with you the entire time you're going through the wilderness. So had they stepped out of their tent, the tent, by the way, view hadn't changed at all. The tent view was still exactly the same. It had been the entire time in their journey. It was bland and it was boring and it was stuffy. But the moment you step outside of that tent, you're in Kadesh Barna, which is an oasis that is so vast and beautiful that there is water and there are trees and thousands of people can be supported in Kadesh Barna. It's that type of oasis. It's still there today. If they had just stepped out of their tent, they would have seen water. They would have seen life. And not only that, if they had stepped outside their tent, they would have seen the promise of God, which was whenever you travel by night, I will have a cloud of fire. And whenever you travel by day, there will be a, just a physical cloud to guide your way. If they had stepped outside of where they physically were, they would have actually seen the presence and the power of God on display. But they missed it. And sometimes just getting outside of your circumstances, it can be something as small as going to take a walk and looking up. Something about that starts to shift our view. Another thing that you can do, this is something I actually do, is keep, keep an encouragement file. Maybe you don't want to call it an encouragement file because that sounds weird. Just keep a place, have a place set aside where you put things where people have said something to you that's meant something. Because people's words in your past can have power in your present if you can bring them back. When um, my son was born, we named him Henry after a man who had shaped my life. You see, I, I was born um, to uh, an, an amazing mother, but the, the guy who fathered me basically was like, look, I'd rather have a career than a son. And so he walked out. And here's my mom, 18 years old, um, and she's got a newborn. And our, my entire life, I grew up without a father. And then this man steps into my life in college after I become a Christian, and he becomes this father figure to me. 
He's one of the best eye surgeons in the world. He gives me LASIK eye surgery as a wedding gift, which is always just that thing that amazed me because he did change how I saw the world, but he also changed how I saw myself. And he passed away about seven years ago. And so he's never known this part of my story. And, and I remember texting Teresa, his wife, and saying, hey, um, you know, we called him Henry because of your husband. Because he changed how I saw the world. His words still change how I see my life. And she texted me back and she said, she was like, I can't wait to meet Henry. She was like, he would have been so proud of you. She was like, I hope you can feel right now how proud he is of you. It was amazing. I'm like, her words, she's a thousand plus miles away right now. And she spoke words that brought up all of these words. Because that was the thing that we'd always say when he'd see me. He's like, do you know how proud of him, of you? Do you know how proud I am of your life? I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of who you've become. And that, in my Evernote, because I am a pretty aggressive Evernoter, um, I take pictures of any note or any email that someone sends me. Any words that I've ever had spoken into my life that are encouraging are in that thing. And on the days where I feel like I'm failing, on the days I feel like I'm losing, I pull it up. And I'm reminded of past victories. And it gives me strength to overcome the discouragement that tells me I'm just staring at something that's going to fail and it's going to fall apart. An another kind of, kind of adjacent thing to keeping an encouragement file is to go and have a small win. Go learn something. Go do something you've never done. Go win somewhere else. If you feel like you're losing in this spot, go win somewhere else. It can be as simple as rearranging or reorganizing or cleaning up your house. I don't know, for some of you, you've probably experienced, this is um, my wife, and she would tell you this if she was in the room, that when she feels like there's inner chaos, she can have an incredible experience if she just gets some outer order in her life. And I can usually tell when my wife's stressed because I'll show up at home, and she's cleaned. She's reorganized. She's refiled. I'm like, what'd you do? She's like, I just rearranged the living room. And I'm like, oh. Do you feel better on the inside? She's like, yeah, I do. Because sometimes when you're discouraged and you feel like you have no control outside of you, when you can find something your hands can still control, it, it encourages you. So you don't need to apologize. It's cheaper than therapy. And it's good for the environment. You're cleaning the house, right? Be free. But it actually can help to shift the view that you find yourself in. For some of you, especially moms, right, new parents, College students, take a nap. Go to sleep. Fatigue is a real source of discouragement. When you are spent, you don't feel like you have anything to spend on anything else. And discouragement creeps in. And you don't need to feel bad. It is, I'm telling you, one of my mentors says one of the most spiritual things you can ever do is take a nap. Okay? And that's sort of not true, but it is surprisingly true a lot of times in life. And for those who are not napping and those who are not sleeping right now, inside, you may have just felt the need to say, yes, that is true. And so give you permission. Take a nap this afternoon. Right? Ask a friend to watch your small kids so that you can lay your head down. Because I have found that many of the mild moments in my life where I'm discouraged gets cured when, I get a, when I'm able to actually have deep sleep. Another thing is to... In the midst of stepping out and the 
small wins, that this shifting your view, there's another part that you can change too. And it's centered around the who, the different who's in your life. The, one of the change in the who category you can make is uh, set up an appointment this week with someone who's actually encouraging. Now, you don't tell your friends this, but we all have a list in our head of those people who, when we spend time with, we feel better. And those time we, the people we, we avoid when we're feeling discouraged, they text us and you don't text them back. They call you, you don't answer because you, you know intuitively inside, whenever I spend time with them, a deduction is made from my soul and my energy level. Now, hopefully I did not just describe to you why people avoid you, but if it's true... People will talk to you. There's some process that you can work through. See me in starting point. I'll give you some tips, right? But the reality is that we all have people in our lives that drain us. And when you're discouraged, you need to be selective about spending time with the draining ones. It's okay to avoid draining people for a season. If you're married to that draining person, we have wonderful marriage counseling that I'd love to introduce you to. That's a separate message. But for the most part, we have people in our life that recharge us. We have people in our life that drain us. And to change the view, you want to spend time with those who recharge you, and you want to avoid those people who drain you. You also want to make sure that when you're talking about what you're discouraged with, you want to talk to someone who's not currently discouraged. You want to talk to someone who's gone through the season of life that you've made it through. It is depressing when you sit down with someone and your life is in shambles or you are struggling and what you find from the other side is my life is too. And you spend an hour or two talking about what you're lacking, what about your longing, but you're not learning anything that's going to help you move through it. And so while it may be helpful periodically to be able to process through those emotions, it's not necessarily going to help with the discouragement if the person you're talking about your discouragement with is discouraged. The, another thing, um, which is a little bit counterintuitive, is to actually quit focusing on you. Pain is powerfully self-centering. Painful people, people who are in pain, are by nature self-centered people. Right? It's It's survival. And one of the best things that you can do is get beyond you. Serve someone. Serve somewhere. To encourage someone. To show up and instead of asking them to pour into you, show up planning to pour out into them. There is something liberating when you do something for someone else with no expectation they're going to do it back, even when you're discouraged. Because what happens is you, you begin to f discover this secret that Jesus talked about even in this throwaway comment that you find in another New Testament letter. He's like, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. That when you pour out, you often find that when you go back, what you poured out has been replaced. And you actually feel energized by it. And that one of the maybe probably most encouraging things you could do this week is offer cook a, cook a meal for someone, right? Babysit their kids, run an errand for them. Do something kind that's helpful. That if you're willing to change your view or change the who, you'll find that something will start to change inside of you. And discouragement will start to move a little bit further and further away from the steering wheel. But before we finish, I want to point out one other thing that I think has true power. 
Because I've given you a lot of handles, so you can grab hold of a bunch of things. Maybe some of you are like, I'm going to go take a nap today. And some of you are like, I got permission to not text that person back because they're draining, right? And, and that's great. But there is something really powerful going on in this, this text I don't want you to miss. It says that they're at Kadesh Barna. Now, that might get some of you excited because you're like, oh, Kadesh Barna. I know Kadesh Barna. Right? See, Kadesh Barna was the site of the two greatest regrets of the people here in this passage. It's interesting. Israel's greatest regret, what sparks the 40 years of wandering that brings them back to this moment, happens Kadesh Barna. Their biggest regret happens in Kadesh Barna. Moses, their leader, his biggest regret in life happens at Kadesh Barna. God brings them to the very place, the very site where their deepest regrets in life happened to have this conversation with them. It's interesting. But you see, I think God does it on purpose. He brings them back to their biggest place of regret to show them that he's not done doing things in their life. He's not, he's not finished. Their biggest place of regret turns out to be the biggest place of redemption in their life. And that for some of us, we, we avoid the mistakes, we avoid the regrets, we avoid those things because we're convinced that they've had the final word. And God brings these people and the person speaking back to the place so that they will know discouragement does not get the final word. That their choices, their decisions do not have to have the final word. Because the challenge is, is that for many of us, we get confused. If you go back to how the Israelites describe the people and the circumstances when the 12 uh, spies come back. It says that the spies said their cities are large, their walls go up to the sky. Now, that's a little strange sounding because for us, we don't think of cities and walls, but in the ancient times, the way that cities protected themselves were with really large walls. If you've ever seen a picture of the Great Wall of China, you notice it's really kind of vast and wide. Uh, chariots could ride up and down. This is how cities constructed walls. They were big enough that troops of army kind of soldiers could stand on top. It was kind of this thing that protected them from the outside. And oftentimes there was like one or two gates and that was it. And they would shut down at night. And that was the protection every city had from like roaming bands of like thugs and people trying to break in and other invading armies. Like this was security back then. And these guys come back and 10 of them say the walls were so large it goes up to the sky. I, I don't, I'm like walls up to the sky? Are you sure about that? I don't know of any wall that goes up to the sky. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. And then if you notice it says we even saw the Anakites there. Now what are the Anakites? The Anakites were giants. I mean like Jack and the Beanstalk kind of giants. I'm, I'm not talking about dudes who work out giants. Jack and the Beanstalk kind of level giants. These are mythical, massive creatures. And so how are they describing the situation? They're describing the situation that they're in. The sky, the walls go up to the sky, and the people there are giants that are just squishes like little tiny bugs. And yet Moses speaks back and he says, look, you've made a mistake. The people and the places have gotten really big and your God has gotten really small. 
he does this really interesting turn. It's hard to see because English is tricky language, but um, most of the, the yous that you see in the passage are you plurals. Like you, like you plural, like you, right? But it, in verse 31, it says, And in the wilderness there you saw how the Lord your God carried you. Your God carried you. It's not you plural. It's you singular. He says, As a father carries his son, all the way you went until you reached this place. Interesting. He's, he's going from talking to a crowd to pointing at a person. He says, God carried you. He carried you. It's no longer this kind of theoretical, abstract God of the people. It's now God of Chris, God of Jeremiah, God of Yeshua, God of right all of these different individuals. Like, wait a second, he's talking to me. And what is he saying? He's like, all these things that have been struggles for us before, God has brought you to this place. When we find ourselves in situations where the people and the places and the struggles we have are bigger than God, we often find ourselves in a place of discouragement. And that Moses wanted to remind them that it's actually God who is small. That it's not God who is small. That when God is as big as he really is, then even the giants are put in their proper place. That even the walls that go up to the sky are put in their proper place. That oftentimes discouragement doesn't just distort our situations and our circumstances. They distort our view and the character of God too. And that we start to think God doesn't care about us. God doesn't understand. God doesn't want me to have freedom. God doesn't want me to have fill in the blank. And discouragement distorts our character view of God. And Moses, in this final moment, because he recognizes everything I'm about to say, all this promise, all this kind of guidance I'm going to offer for the next 30 plus chapters of this book, I need you to understand this, that discouragement is going to derail you, it's going to distort you, it's going to take you away from what God has for you, that your parents made that mistake, but you don't have to. You can have control over discouragement. It does not have to control you, and it starts with having a proper view of God. Because when you have that proper view of God, everything else begins to fall into place. And he says to them in a way that I think C.S. Lewis captures brilliantly, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. That maybe you find yourself in your Kadesh Barna. Maybe you find yourself in a place of regret. And I'm here to say to you that God who takes people to places of regret uses those places of regret to be places of redemption to write better stories than the ones that they've written. You are not done. Discouragement does not have to have the final word in your life. There's a God who is bigger than your mistakes. There's a God who's bigger than your choices, your sin, your circumstances, your challenges, your situation. There's a God who's bigger than the walls and the giants of this life. There's a God who's bigger than your marriage struggles. There's a God who's bigger than the financial place that you find yourself in. There's a God who is bigger than the addictions. And one of the most powerful things that you can do, I want to introduce to you in the way that we close out our song and our time today, that there is something that can unlock inside of you when you realize that faith can bring power inside of you. And that 
what was interesting was these people talked about buildings and walls and people that they did not see. They were, they were calling them giants, and yet they'd never seen them. You see, at the end of the day, most of the fear, the anxiety, and the worry that we have is fixated on something invisible in our life that we haven't even seen yet. We're so afraid of so many things lurking out there in the what-if scenarios, and they're all invisible. And yet, what happens in faith is that we focus our attention on the right invisible, the God who is bigger and greater than anything in this earth could hold. And when we put our view on him, then what we will find is that we will find strength, not just to change our view or the who, but it can start to change you too. And discouragement doesn't have to have the final word in your life. God can. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.